Well, good morning. Like you said, my name is Brandy. Uh, I lead a college campus ministry that seeks to see Jesus' love reach every corner of every campus in Eugene. So if you're a college-age student and want to get involved with something like that, come talk to me. Uh, and what I love about my job is that it gives me a front row seat to what God is doing in the lives of college students. And it's really amazing in a lot of ways. But I realize that that sounds kind of sexy and spiritual because I am like a minister in some capacity. But the other way that I describe my job is that I get rejected by 18-year-olds for a living. <laughs> I encounter a ton of people on a regular basis, most of who don't care that I exist at all. And many, if I'm being honest with myself, I don't particularly care to like or to love. And too often, church is a place where we don't choose to be particularly honest. So I'm going to invite us to be honest today. I'm going to come in honest, and I'm going to ask you to do the same. Because when we come here, sometimes we try to be better than we are, or worse, we try to perform the best version of what we think that we should be. And that messes us up in a pretty significant way especially as we try to figure out what it means to like and to love people, which seem like simple things, but I think when we actually get down to it, it's much harder than we would like to believe. So together lately, we've been in a series on the book of Luke. Um, and last week, we learned about a Roman officer uh, that Jesus uses as a model of faith, right, despite all of the social and political implications of that for his disciples. So we're going to take a break from Luke today to dive a little bit deeper into something that we learned last week. Right, Tim invited us to see the ways that we might find the image of Jesus in people that we don't expect. And I think that, again, that sounds really nice in practice, or in, like, an idea, but in practice, it doesn't play out very pleasantly. Because the reality is that we don't see the image of Jesus in people who don't look like us for a reason. Right, we work pretty hard not to be awful people, to have the right politics, the right theology. And so when we enter spaces like church or anywhere in our lives, we compare ourselves to other people, and if other people are not like us, we are the standard by which we recognize Jesus. We become our own archetype for God, and that is a little bit of a problem. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't make us see ourselves very clearly. We are prone to judgment and criticism and condescension in ways that do not reflect Jesus. And I think we could learn something from Andre 3000 in the song Roses, which I will paraphrase, to say that we think that our nonsense is less bad than other people's nonsense, but the closer that we get to our own, we realize that our stuff stinks too. One of my favorite poets, uh, Rupi Kaur, has a short poem that says, to hate is an easy, lazy thing, but to love takes strength that everyone has, but not all are willing to practice. So today we're going to talk about loving and liking. And if we're honest, again, we're being honest today, loving and liking are conceptually very, very odd things. The mere conflation of the words makes defining them confusing, let alone in the context of Christian or religious community. I can go through my day saying that I love pizza, and hopefully that means something different than when I say I love the person next to me. I can say that I love an idea that's presented to me, or I can say that I, or I can say that I love you to a person. I can say that I love a person romantically, in a friendship context, or in a I just met you and I love that girl kind of way. Right? There's a lot of ways that we use love. We can take it a step further and say that we hypothetically love an entire group of people. We can say that we love the LGBTQ plus community, that we love black and Latino folks or other marginalized communities. But what we're really saying is that we're down for a cause, right? We don't actually know or love or maybe even intersect our lives with those folks. So love and what it means to love people is really complicated. And then we start talking about liking. I can like a person or I can like a person. 
I can like a person that I'm dating and name something closer to love, or I can say that I really like an idea because it's better than the last terrible idea that I just heard. Right? That's every group or collaborative project that maybe you've ever worked on. You just pick the least bad thing and go with it. But I've consolidated the complication of all of this into a chart that I want to put up to help us to recognize what love and liking looks like. So, right, we have a chart here on the x-axis, love and don't love, and like and don't like. So liking and loving is easy, right? I love and like my mentors and my friends. They're people who I enjoy and who it is not typically hard to love. But there's also people that I love and I don't like. You may resonate with this. That could be my siblings. It could be my family friends who I'm forced to be with once or twice a year or my actual racist Uncle Tom. Yes, I have a racist Uncle Tom who owns a cabin, so it's a special time in my life. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, we can love people and, <laughs> yeah, it's really unfortunate. Uh, we can like people and not love them, right? Like Justin Bieber, like I love Jennifer Lopez's performance last year at the AMAs, but I don't love her, I don't know her. Or Science Mike, who, who Tim references semi-often. And then there's the people that we don't like and don't love. Some political figures, our enemies, or that guy who cut me off when I was trying to ride my motorcycle yesterday. Right, there's a lot of ways that this plays out, and I think we could name people in all of these categories if we are being honest. And so as we talk about this, I wanna give us a low bar to try to transcend. I think that we should try to live squarely in the left column, and a lot of you might be like, hey, that seems like, again, a low bar. Shouldn't we try to like and love everybody? And I would say, yeah, sure, in an ideal world, but I'm a realist. And I know that even the early church didn't experience the Care Bears-style love festival that we would expect to exist in this like and love category. So today we're going to look briefly at a story about Jesus teaching people how to like and love people, how to orient ourselves into this category. Because at the end of the day, we are not beyond the basics. And in the same way that we learn to give a little bit of our money generously when we don't make much so that we can give more when we have money, we learn how to like and love people now so that we can actually do things like love our enemies, because I don't think that we can do that without practice. But again, a moment of communal honesty. For about 30 seconds, I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to describe a few characteristics of people that you do not like or love. Turn to your neighbor. What are three characteristics of people that you do not like or love typically? Thank you. Yeah. All righty. We could do this for a really long time, I'm sure, and it will really show you how good of people we are in a lot of ways. When I think of my own list, I think about people with egos, people who lack self-awareness, people who are over-spiritual know-it-alls, uh, my friends who have really boring lives but curate them to look really interesting on Instagram, people who own spiders as pets, people who pineapple on their pizza, people who use speakerphone in public spaces, and people who unironically watch The Bachelor. That's me. I unironically watch The Bachelor. <laughs> right, the reality is when we think about characteristics of people that we do not like or don't love, we probably fall into a lot of those categories too, and all of us are that person for somebody. So again, let's be real with each other. And again, we might like to think that we are awesome people that are generally loving, but humanity has failed at liking and loving people enough times that I know not to get my hopes up too high. 
right? If God has to become a human to show us how to like and love each other and how to love the environment and our community well, then it tells us that we have a long way to go. Right? I want us to be a community of people who have joy and life and love together, but I think that takes some self-worth first. Because if we are clear, right, Jesus is a person who probably shouldn't like people very much. If there's one person who shouldn't like people, it's Jesus. Jesus shows up on the scene, and the temple system's messed up, religious people are being terrible, and everything's kind of going awry. Right? And Jesus shows up in the midst of that. And in trying to bring the kingdom of God, right, where what God wants to have happen happens, or where God is king, Jesus decides that he's going to change the world and help people learn to like and love each other by gathering a group of people. So he starts walking around, calling followers or subjects, right? People that we would call subjects if he was a king, but he calls disciples and friends for some reason. And Jesus goes around and he finds these amazing men who do everything right and who are super excellent. No. If you have spent any time reading the text at all, you will know that Jesus' disciples not only don't ever know what the hell is going on in their own lives, and they're right next to Jesus, they don't get it at all. Over the three years that they're with Jesus, here's a short and quick list of things that they do that make them quite unlikable and unlovable. They don't understand anything that's happening. They fail to ask questions. They perpetuate ethnocentrism. They sit silent in the face of others' oppression. They prevent people from doing Jesus-y stuff because they're not one of the 12. They argue about which one of them is the best. They favor the rich and powerful. They literally push children out of Jesus' presence. They try to vie for positions of power in the kingdom. They betray him for money. They disregard all of his instructions and claims about himself. They deny that they ever knew him, and they abandon him and leave him alone to die. Jesus picked those guys. <laughs> These guys probably fit the description of people that are hard to love that we thought of earlier. I can't imagine that at every moment Jesus was super into them, Right, if you look in the Gospels, you'll find phrases like faithless generation and, quote, how long must I deal with you to describe them. Jesus doesn't always have to like people to love them. But in the end of his life, Jesus gives us this really incredible picture of what it looks like to try to like and love people to the very end. So we're going to look briefly at John 13. And as we enter in, Jesus is aware that he is about to die at the hands of a corrupt religious and political system. So we enter in in John 13. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God. Now what would we expect Jesus to do here? Jesus is going to leave. He knows he's going to die, and he gets one more chance to say some things to his friends or to do something. If I were Jesus, I would expect that he would sit them down for a really clear conversation and maybe rebuke them a little bit. Like, yo, guys, it's about to go down. Don't mess this up. You're the ones who will carry my reputation. I really want you to not ruin this. But the reality is, and I think some of us need to hear this today, that Jesus is always more good, kind, and gentle than we expect. And this is what happens next. Can we get the next slide? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. When I would expect a rebuke, Jesus gets up and starts to take off his clothing. And this is unexpected. 
in this cultural context, it's hard to get the full meaning of what it would mean for Jesus to choose to demonstrate his love in this way, especially when these guys are really hard to like. These guys would have been familiar with foot washing, right? In ancient Palestine, they were walking all the time and wearing sandals, and so when people would come into homes, they would, get their, they would either wash their own feet or get their feet washed by the most, only the most submissive of servants, children, or wives. Right, this position of foot washing is considered dirty because it literally was, um, both in status and in practice. But Jesus removes his outer garment and not only takes on the role of a servant, but the appearance of one. And let's not forget that just a chapter before this, Mary stooped down at a public meal and washed Jesus' feet with an expensive perfume, and Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, publicly criticizes her and rebukes her for doing so. Foot washing is something that these guys are really familiar with, and have already had super awkward experiences with Jesus around. I wonder if they're getting really uncomfortable going to places where they have to wash their feet because these things keep happening in Jesus' presence. But Jesus, the king of the world, the son of God, whatever you want to call him, strips his physical marker of status, follows in the footsteps of a woman who has just done this for him about a week before, and begins to wash the feet of his idiot disciples. And if you're like me, this makes you uncomfortable. If Jesus were in front of me, I would not be down for this. It's super awkward, and it feels wrong, and Jesus of all people should not be doing such a low and servantile act. And it turns out that one of his disciples thinks the exact same thing. So Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Simon Peter asks the obvious question that's hanging in the room. He says, Jesus, this isn't your job. Why are you doing this? He's extroverting the awkwardness that's present in the room in a way that probably lets everyone go, at least someone thought to say something. He's trying to release a little bit of tension. But then Jesus answered, in very typical Jesus fashion, you do not know what I am doing, but later you will understand. Typical mysterious Jesus. I think a lot of the time we want clarity from Jesus, and he says, wait, and later you will understand. But no, Simon does not like this answer and in typical fashion starts to become a man who's quite unlikable. Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet, old claim. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. So this escalates very, very quickly. Jesus' act so violates cultural norms and standards that Simon Peter cannot conceive of a reality where this happens. And Jesus responds to him really, really strongly. Either I wash your feet, or you have no place with me at all. So by implication, something about this act so defy, so, so embodies who Jesus is and is so central to who Jesus is, that the application here is right that humble and vulnerable service to those people that we don't love or like determines whether our association with Jesus is real. Humble and vulnerable service determines whether our association with Jesus is real. And again, let's draw back and recognize how awkward this situation is. The disciples in the room are probably feeling away at this point um, because the awkwardness doesn't end. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Typical overkill from an unlikable person. I love his enthusiasm, but this brother needs to learn to sit down and to pay attention. If I were one of, the, one of the other disciples in the room, I might be rolling my eyes at him. Or if I was going to be maybe more honest, I might be the person rolling my eyes at the one rolling their eyes, so it never ends. We all stand to uh, lose a little bit of our judgment. 
right? Simon lacks self-management and is creating a more awkward situation out of an already terrible situation. But then the moment ends. After washing their feet, Jesus puts his clothes back on and returns to the meal to explain a little bit about what he's trying to show them. The text tells us that after he washed their feet, had put on his robe, and had returned to the table, he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Not if you think them, not if they're in your heart, if you do them. And this is wild to me, that in one of Jesus' last actions, John describes this as how Jesus loves people to the end. And he does so for a group of guys who he knows will literally abandon him to his death in two days. Jesus gives us a model of how we can love and like people like he does, and the ways that we can see ourselves like Simon Peter as the critical person or the judgmental person or the awkward person or the unlikable person, like unlikable people, unlikable community maybe, that we can be or are. He's setting an example of how his followers are to engage with each other. And again, I'm guessing after this interaction, the disciples are feeling a way about Peter. Serve him. They're all going to betray Jesus and each other. Love each other and support each other till the end. I think that person's boring and I don't want to be around them. Love and care about them. Humble yourself and find ways to practically care about the people around you. Because the actions of the disciples do not discount them from Jesus' love or his affection or his service. But I wonder how many times people's actions discount them from our love and our affection and our service. So at a basic level, if God himself stoops to the lowest level to model for us how to learn to love and like people, there are clearly ways that God wants to transform us in the same way. And I don't want to act like this is not challenging. We like and love based on our feelings, and Jesus likes and loves based on acts and action. Right? It's easy to go through our lives going to Bible studies or to worship services every week and never connect to or enjoy the people around us in our church, in our workplaces, or the places that we go on a regular basis. But Jesus redefines who is worthy of liking and loving in this passage and invites his disciples to love and serve each other even and especially when they don't like each other. So what does this mean for us? I think sometimes we hear, we hear talks about liking and loving people or like not hating people, and they stay really up here in the air. And I am not that kind of person, so we're going to do some practical pro tips on how to like and love people. Right, because we want to live on this chart in, this le in like the left category, um, but it's pretty hard to move there if we don't have practical and effective tools to do so. If Jesus does this to the point of liking and loving his enemies to the point of his death, then I think we can practice in our day-to-day -day with our friends and coworkers. So I'm going to give us four ways that I think that we can posture ourselves to like and love like Jesus did. Because remember, as we're doing this, it's not so we can be nicer people or just have a pleasant community. It's because in our culture, we are taught that hate is an appropriate way to engage with people that you disagree with. Uh, one of my favorite social researchers, Brene Brown, says people are really hard to hate close up. And I think that oftentimes we keep ourselves so distant from people that they remain easy to hate and to not like. So the first thing, before we talk about any other people and how to like and love them, we need to talk about ourselves. And the first thing that we're going to do as we learn to like and love people is to grow in our self-awareness. So 
when people bother us, or we tend toward, uh, you know, when people bug us, we tend toward really unloving snap judgments and criticisms. They're pretty unpleasant. And I think that we rarely ask the question, why? We make an assumption, and then we just think that we're bothered, instead of asking, why am I bothered? Is this about them, or is this actually about me? Yeah, I do this with people all the time. I get annoyed and frustrated, and the reasons typically mirror more of my judgment and my control issues than they do other people being the horrible jerks that I think that they are. See, I wanna control people, I lack grace, and I wanna seem better than everyone else, and so it's pretty easy for me to not ask the question about why I'm so frustrated. So, here's a tool to figure out the ways that maybe we are quite unlikable. Again, because usually when I'm bothered, it reveals something about who I am more than it does about the person that I'm criticizing. So when you feel frustrated, or you feel like you want to hate someone, or someone does something that's really unlikable, I want you to ask why five times. This is a way that I get to finding the log that's in my own eye when I try to call out with a megaphone the speck that isn't someone else's. So, in a situation recently, uh, someone uh, came to me criticizing my work. My first thought, that person has horrible judgment. They are the worst. Why? Because they criticized my work, and I do, not, I do not like the way that that feels. Why? Because I'm pretty insecure, and I feel pretty bad when I get criticized for things that I do wrong. Why? Because I want to be liked, and for people to value and respect my work. Why? because I find my value almost fully in being efficient and successful. This isn't necessarily about them, this is about me. Discipleship is almost always about us, not about the other person. So we can grow in self-awareness by asking why five times, and if you can't figure out the next level, ask someone who's close to you, they can probably tell you why. <laughs> Number two, we need to give people a chance, and that requires time. For the most part, we don't like and love people that we don't spend any time with. I believe that Jesus really liked and loved his disciples and maybe showed up in the cultural moment that he did so that he could walk around and go from city to city and be with people. Again, people are really hard to hate close up. So can we spend time with people before we make rash and snap judgments about who they are? And right, in Christian community, we don't just do things together to have fun. We do things because we become more like Jesus when we encounter people who are different than us. So I think we have a lot to learn, particularly about listening to people who aren't like us. Empathy and compassion are central to the way of Jesus. They're at the center of his ministry. And when we hear things or that we disagree with around race or gender, sexuality, theology, politics, can we choose to listen, to engage with people's lives and experiences, to affirm their humanity, and to find more of ourselves as the image of God in us meets the image of God in other people? Because that's what's happening as we're in community. But this is, not, this is not easy. So pro tip, if you are trying to spend time with someone who you do not like or love, do not do the typical Christian thing, which is this. Hey, you wanna go to coffee sometime? Do not sit in a coffee meeting with no clear end time with someone who you already don't like. Hang out in groups, go on a hike, go to a bar. If you're going to go out to eat, go somewhere where they bring you a check at the end so you can have an end point. These are very practical things that impact our very spirituality. Right, invite them to an event you're already going to. We do not need to be so fancy as to just go heart to heart in our first interaction with a person we don't like. 
don't set yourself up to fail. Baby steps. Third, and this one is going to be hard for some of us, we need to learn to lean into conflict instead of gossip. Conflict avoidance breeds bitterness and reveals a lot about who we are as people and what we think about ourselves and others. Adults should be able to have conversations about conflict without being jerks. So before I enter into a conflict, particularly when I have a lot of feelings about something, I use a tool uh, around numbers. Reality versus how I'm feeling about reality. I use a scale of one to 10. On a scale of one to 10, how strongly am I feeling what just happened or what has been said to me? On a scale of one to 10, how big of a deal is this actually? So recently my boss, hi Joel, <laughs> happy birthday. Uh, I, Joel talked to me about a thing that I had done that had disrespected some of my coworkers in some way. And he just said it in a really kind way that was like, hey, don't do that again. But you know, defensiveness is probably some rendition of the devil and uh, rose up in me pretty intensely. What he was saying to me was maybe a two on a scale of one to 10, but I was feeling it like a seven or an eight. And I had to stop and go, how do I bring myself down to a level where I can respond proportionate to what's actually happening? Sometimes we don't slow down enough to figure out the difference between reality and what we're feeling about it and do really bad harm to each other in conflict. So I want to invite us to have conflict and to have conflict rooted in reality and bringing ourselves down to a level where we can like and love people in the ways that we talk to them. And then finally, we can't talk about Jesus serving his disciples without saying that we need to learn to serve each other. Jesus models deep humility and service. And if you don't feel like you're a part of a community or like people around you very much, find ways to serve them. There are always ways to love people and serve in community, whether it's individually or through being a part of a prayer team, or serving your roommates, or housemates, or your kids, or your spouses. And finding time to be around people and to practically serve people that you're just not that into. See, because Christian community never started at its core with a group of people who liked and loved each other. It just didn't. It's centered around Jesus, who redefines loving and liking people, not based on what they deserve, but by the reality that because they are human, that they have dignity. So much so that the God of the universe would put himself in the place of a servant to show them his work, their work. So can we quit acting like people's lives don't count, or that some people's lives count more than others? Because I think we do that in Christian spaces and have caused a lot of harm. And can we take practical, practical, practical steps to proactively like and love people and to see ourselves rightly and as Jesus sees us? So I'm going to pray that we could do that kind of community.